Suppose there was a, a Christian woman who wanted to obey God, wanted to live her life in accordance with all of God's decrees, and she was approached by three different men. Her husband, her pastor, and the local medical officer of health. And her husband says to her, I order you as my wife not to get vaccinated and not to go to church. Shortly thereafter, her pastor approaches her and he says, I order you not to get vaccinated, but to be in church every week. Well, before long, she's approached by the local medical officer of health. And the local medical officer of health says, I order you to get vaccinated and I order you not to go to church. Now, this Christian woman, of course, is well read in scripture. She's read Romans 13, which says you're supposed to submit to state authorities. She's read Ephesians 5, which says you're supposed to submit to your husband. And she's read Hebrews 13, which says you're supposed to submit to your church leaders. So she finds herself in a predicament. Three different instructions, all of which are different. In order to obey any one of these men, she would have to disobey the other two. What is this poor Christian woman supposed to do? How is it possible for a Christian when they've received different instructions from different people, all of whom were told to submit to, to figure out what her response should be. Well, you could take this scenario and apply it to any of the decisions that you make or any of the things that are going on in culture today. Because each of us finds ourselves in societal structures under authority at one point or another under the authority of church leaders, under the authority of various levels of government, a wife under the authority of her husband, a child under the authority of his or her parents. And everyone has something that you're supposed to do to keep them happy. So the question is, what is the biblical response when we are called to submit to folks that have different ideas for us about what it means to obey them. Well, I'd like to start off this new sermon series called All Under God. I'll just introduce it to you. All Under God. Really what it is, is it's a study in biblical roles and limited authority. And I'd like to go through the scriptures with you for the next four weeks and to study this critical issue of authority. What are the areas of delegated authority that God has bestowed upon men and women? And what are the boundaries? What are the limits of those different spheres, those different areas of social life, of spiritual life, of state life? Now, in life, there are different places we often find ourselves, different relationships we find ourselves in. But I want to begin by reminding us all that all spheres of life, including the family, that's a sphere, the church, 
that's a sphere. And the state, that's another sphere, are actually all ultimately under the authority of God in Christ. But that each sphere of life has been granted by God delegated authority, limited authority to wield over those who are under them. So we want to make this like super clear. We are not anarchists. We are not rebels without a cause. We are not a rebellious brood of people. That's not the Christian posture. The Christian posture is not, let's pick a fight with anybody that ever tells us what to do. No, we want to honor authority. We want to submit ourselves to authority. We want to pray for those that are in positions of authority. But at the same time, we want to be reminded that no sphere of life, family, church, or state, has absolute authority over their subjects. Now, if you're interested in Christian theology, this study that we're going to do is called sphere sovereignty. And what it seeks to discuss is if you look at, if you picture life as a sphere, so draw a circle in your mind and put the word family in it. Draw a circle in your mind and put the word state in it. Draw a circle in your mind and put the word family in it. Each of those areas of life, which we all believe in, which we all champion, which we're all impacted by, has an outer circle that limits their authority. Each of these spheres of life has authority, has a measure of sovereignty, if you will, over their subjects or over their followers, but there's a boundary to it. Now, why is this super, super, super critical during the age within which we find ourselves? Because in the Western world, most nations have become what we call statist nations where they perceive of the state as one big giant circle that has absolute authority over all the other spheres. And within their giant sphere, there's the church, there's the school, there's the hospital, there's the family, there's, there, there's marriage. And the notion is that the state controls ultimately everything. This is not a biblical notion. I'm going to prove it to you this morning in less than a half an hour. My sermon's going to be longer than a half an hour, but I'm going to prove it to you in a half an hour. (laughs) So what I would like to do this morning is to give you a general overview of this biblical notion of sphere sovereignty. And then in the coming three weeks, I want to take each of these sort of critical, most foundational spheres. There are others. And I want to talk more about what are the boundaries of family life? What, what kind of authority do parents have over their children? And where is their authority limited? What kind of authority does a husband have over his wife? And where is his authority limited? What kind of authority does a pastor have over his church? Does a police officer, a premier, a paid civil servant have over their subjects? We'll, we'll discuss these in more detail in the weeks to come. But this is just our introduction today. So let's start off with the foundation. Behind any discussion, any Christian discussion of sphere sovereignty, or in other words, who's in charge, who should I submit to, who has authority over me, behind any discussions about that, the Christian 
is demanded to affirm the comprehensive authority of Christ over all of the rest of life. Christ is in charge of absolutely everything and all spheres of life are in fact under his authority as God. So let's, let's look at a scripture passage that makes this crystal clear. Colossians chapter one, verses 15 to 17. In Colossians chapter one, verses 15 to 17, there's some teaching there about who Jesus is. And then there's some instruction about his authority. It says in verse 15, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is God incarnate. He is God enfleshed. If you wanna know God, you have to know Christ. The firstborn of all creation, note that word, we'll come back to it, the word firstborn. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible. Now I want you to pay attention to these next four words whether thrones or dominions or rulers or what? Authorities, all things. So that means all authorities. Anybody that's sitting on a throne that has a dominion, that has any speck of authority over anyone else, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So when we discuss matters of authority, we have to start off with this foundational truth that Christ is actually authoritative over every single aspect of life. Every sphere of life, every person in any culture, in any planet, anywhere on planet earth is ultimately under the authority of God because Christ is God incarnate. Now we have the word firstborn here. If you were raised perhaps in a kingdom hall by the Jehovah's Witnesses, perhaps you were taught, you were used, they, they used this text as a proof text. Aha, Christ was created. He's the firstborn, meaning he's born first. He was God's little boy. He didn't exist before the world came into existence. He was created. He was temporal. Therefore he is not God, he's just God's son in the sense that he was begotten by the father. And many would look at that verse and say, hmm, well, maybe that's what that verse is teaching. But in actual fact, to interpret the text that way is to misunderstand both the word firstborn and the word before. The word firstborn, you see, is a, is a word that means supreme over all. And it's meaning is derived from an ancient law, an ancient custom called primogeniture. In ancient cultures, unlike ours, this notion of primogeniture taught that the oldest son had the right to inherit his father's entire estate. Now we don't do that today, do we? We're like, fairsy squaresy. If we have two children, they get 50% of the estate each. And God help the person that comes from a family of 10 or 12 because you get nothing. But in ancient times, the oldest son had this right of primogeniture. So think about Esau. Remember Esau? Esau was actually a twin. He was the brother of Jacob. And he was like many men led by his stomach. So he comes home hungry one day and he wants food. And 
His brother sort of refuses it, but he says, well, let me make you a deal. How about I give you some stew if you give me the rights of the firstborn? And for whatever crazy reason, Esau agrees to that. And so he forfeits his right. And Jacob rises up, even though he was born second, to, to receive his, the, the lion's share of his father's blessing. Or we could think back to Abraham. A lot of people think of uh, Ishmael and, and, and Isaac, but after Sarah died, the Bible tells us that Abraham married again and had several more sons. And they're just sort of mentioned in passing. And it says, and when they grew, Abraham sent them off to the east. Like, that's kind of mean. How come Isaac gets the estate and all the rest get sent off to the east because of this cultural legal notion of primogeniture? So when the Bible speaks of firstborn and applies it to Christ, what it's actually telling us is that Christ is supreme over all creation. He inherits creation as his rightful dominion, one could say. Now, there's a further notion here that adds to this. It says, for by him, that is Christ, Christ is the eternal logos that spoke the world into existence. For by him, all things were created. So if he was created, was God's little boy, if you will, then how could one that created all things create himself, who would be part of all things? So the eternality of Christ is part of Orthodox Christian doctrine. And in verse 16, it says that Christ spoke the world into existence. And by the way, that includes both that which is material and that which is immaterial. If you can see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, or hear it, Christ created it. And in addition to that, the angelic realms, the spirit world was also spoken to existence by Christ. So this is a, a verse that presents us with this comprehensive understanding that everything that is, save God himself, was created by the eternal son of God. Therefore, everyone in a position of authority, whether they are sitting on a throne, ruling over a dominion, some sort of other ruler, anyone with authority is actually under the authority of Christ. Any authority that you might have is delegated authority. Granted to you as part of your stewardship, as part of your role as an image bearer of God. And your job is to exercise your stewardship under the authority of Christ. There is no authority that is not under the authority of Christ. Now, we know that the vast majority of the people in the world do not believe that and don't acknowledge that. There are many leaders that feel that they are God. There are many states that function as if they are God because their authority is considered to be all-encompassing. The status ruler says, I have authority over your ability to exit your house. I have authority over what will be injected into your body. I have authority over your ability to work. I have authority over what you're allowed to say and not say. I have authority in defining marriage so I can make marriage three men or three women if I want. I can decide that there are no longer genders in violation of the 
of natural law, which governs the world. This is all statism. This is the state without using the word God and without appealing to historical religious language, functioning as God over your life. And the reason why people do that is because they fail to understand who truly has granted them authority and who truly is in charge. Christ is before all things. He has primogeniture and it says he literally holds it together. He sustains your existence. Think about that. Your metabolism is sustained by God. Your circulatory system is sustained by God. The orbit of planets around the sun is sustained by God. The seasons are sustained by God. Time itself is sustained by God. The creator sustains the world. And if the creator chose to remove his sustaining hand from all of us, we would just, our lives would come to an immediate halt. So this is a Christian worldview. When you're going to talk about authority, you're going to wrestle with what authority does a parent have over a child, a husband over his wife, the state over their subjects, a pastor over his people. Foundational to all of this, you have to nail this one down. Christ is the ultimate authority over all things. Now in the creation mandate, so if you go back to Genesis 1, where we read about our creation, and there's a couple interesting words there. When God creates Adam and subsequently Eve, he tells them, this is the word he uses, to go and rule. Hmm, Interesting. So the king is telling us to rule? Yes, we are to rule. We are to have dominion. That's another kingly kind of word, authority kind of word. We are to have dominion over creation, but we do it under the ultimate authority of God. So our job is to go out into the world and proclaim the kingship of Christ, remind people of the lordship of Christ, to steward the world on his behalf, but to never ever make the mistake of thinking that we own it or we are the ultimate kings or queens of this world. Our authority is delegated. And in the process of delegating authority, I may receive some authority that you don't receive. And you may receive some authority that I don't receive, depending on your role in society. But we need to understand that when we're exercising our authority, there's never a reason to justify disobedience to Christ in order to obey someone with delegated authority. Christ never expects you to disobey him, ladies, in order to obey your husband. Christ never expects you, Christian, to disobey him in order to obey me. Christ never will ask you to disobey him in order to obey the premier of Ontario. So it's often been said that when a, when a husband, when a parent, when a magistrate or when a pastor commands you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that God commands, you have a right and a responsibility to disobey them. So if you think of it this way, bring a little diagram up on the screen just to make it super simple. Christ is at the top, not the family, not the state, not me. Christ is at the top He has ultimate authority over every other sphere or circle of life. And as part of our stewardship, 
He delegates a measure of authority to the family. We could speak of two types of authority there, and we will in future weeks, the authority of the husband and then the authority of parents over their children. He grants a measure of authority to the state, and he grants a measure of authority to the church. But there's a circle that's around each of those. It's not comprehensive. The green circle around the family doesn't include Christ. The green circle around the state doesn't include Christ. It's under the authority of Christ. So this is critical for us to understand as we wrestle with all the completing, competing claims to absolute authority over the church, over the state, over marriage, over life in the modern Canadian context. So let's just do a little bit of an introduction to each three of these spheres. So we'll start with the family. What is the most basic authority that God has delegated to the family? Well, families start off with couples. And the most basic authority that God has demonstrated to the family is the authority of the husband to lovingly lead his wife toward Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, it says, this is such unambiguous language. I don't understand why so many Christians get this wrong or disobey it. It's so crystal clear. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not to any old husband that shows up, just to yours. Just to your husband. For the husband is the head, that's a strong word, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Notice an equal sign there. Christ is the head of the church. Anybody got a problem with that? So why do so many people have a problem with the husband being the head of his wife? This is what God's word says, his body and is himself its savior. Now, here's another equal sign. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Well, in everything, that sounds rather comprehensive, pastor. So if my husband says, you're not allowed to go to church, you have to get vaccinated. You're not allowed to get vaccinated. You have to stay in a closet all your life, whatever it might be. Oh, it says in everything. Am I supposed to submit to a tyrannical husband who abuses me, who misuses me, who takes advantage of me? Within the family unit, we also have this notion of parents being authoritative over their children, do we not? So one of those commandments, you know, the the top 10 list back in Exodus 20, It says, children, honor your father and mother that your lives might be long. So children are under the authority of their parents. But what if it's an abusive parent? Is a child supposed to honor their father by allowing their father to sexually molest them? To smack them around? To withhold food from them? No. In this context, a wife is to submit to her husband in everything, meaning in every area of authority that God has delegated to that man. But there are limits to it. It's not comprehensive. And of course, we understand that most of the time, husbands utilize their authority properly. Parents utilize their authority properly. Police officers utilize their authority properly. Premiers utilize their authority properly under normal circumstances, but sometimes they transgress. 
And when they transgress, when they don't use the authority that they have properly, it's okay to disobey them. No husband can command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. He must lead his wife, but every Christian husband must lead his wife, what does the text say, lovingly, as a man who understands he is under God, and every man in this room who's a husband, I'm gonna tell you this, brothers, one day you, you, sir, will stand before God and give a full account for the way that you have led your wife and your children. So hopefully that gets you excited if you're doing a good job and repenting if you've exercised or wielded your authority in an inappropriate way. But we'll discuss this again more fully in a sermon to come. This is just an intro, as I've already mentioned. Secondly, we have the authority of the church. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. And in Hebrews chapter 13, we have similar language, submission language given to the church with regard to church leadership. So it says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Same word, submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give, have to give an account. So there again, if you're gonna be an elder pastor, you might think, oh, I'd, like, I'd like that role because I get to stand up in front of people and tell them what to do. <laughs> you will give an account for every word that comes out of your mouth. James 3.1 also teaches that. And one day, I know this, and it's, it's an intimidating reality. I will have to stand before God and give a thorough accounting for the way that I have led the people of God. It's kind of intimidating, actually, to think about. But then to the people of God, it says about their leaders, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In other words, don't make their job difficult for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, some Christians see it as their role to be the official opposition in the church to any leadership decision that's ever made. I remember years ago, I was in a church meeting and there was this ornery old guy that would always put up his hand and he'd, he'd always, no matter what the decision was, he'd have something negative to say about it. And he talked to him off to the side and he's like, well, that's my job. I'm like the official opposition, right? Well, this isn't parliament. This is the church. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So the good news is you're praying for your leaders. And if they're good leaders, they're gonna have a clear conscience because ultimately they're gonna be acting honorably in all things. They're gonna be serving the Lord and therefore serving you. So the church leadership here has a job description. And the job description is to lead the church and keep watch over your souls. Nobody benefits by making a leader's job difficult. Instead, we obey, the Bible says. We submit, that's the second command. And the third one is we pray for our church leaders. Suppose a church leader's reading this and he's like, hmm, this is good, I like this. I could use this to my advantage. You have to obey me. You have to submit to me. And you have to pray for me. Hopefully not imprecatory Psalms, but you have to pray for me. And I noticed 
fella at the back. I noticed you came in today with a nice brand new car. Well, I want you to leave the keys on my desk on the way out. Because the Bible says right here, you have to obey me. Or suppose I was to say, you know what? Susie and I wound up with five children, so we're making a rule in our church. All the women in the church, you have to have five kids. And when you have them, you will show up to my office and I will name them. After all, and by the way, they're all going to be named Aaron, men or women. You're like, okay, this sounds a little cult-like. Well, it says you're supposed to obey me. Now, if I, if I pulled those kind of stunts, you would rightfully be able to say, okay, this dude really is a cult leader, right? But then when our premier says, I have authority over defining marriage. I have authority over your ability to work, your ability to worship, your ability to celebrate the Lord's Supper, your ability to exit your home. And I have authority over what goes into your body. Why, why, why do we call him a cult leader? He is providing over the cult of the state. He really is. He's providing over the cult of the state. Intentions aside, that doesn't matter. Good intentions, bad, or somewhere in between, it's completely irrelevant. He's transgressed his authority. The state is never granted absolute authority over every sphere and aspect of life. This is critical. Why? Well, church leaders have authority but it's not exhaustive. It has boundaries and limits. Husbands have authority, but it's not exhaustive. It has boundaries and limits. Parents have authority, but it's not exhaustive. It has boundaries and it has limits. And in the same way, the state has authority, but it has boundaries and it has limits. So let's talk thirdly about the authority of the state. And we'll go to Romans 13. Why? Because everybody knows Romans 13. You know, back in the 1970s, if you were to ask a non-Christian, hey, can you quote me one Bible verse? Pretty much everybody knew John 3.16. In the 90s, if you ask someone to quote a Bible verse, everybody knew Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest you be judged. Now everybody knows Romans 13 but they just don't understand it properly for the most part. So let's bring some clarity to it. In Romans 13, this is the proof text that's used by statist and by even statist pastors to coerce their congregations into absolute submission to every edict from the state. But it's not found in the text. This is what the Bible says. Let every person be subject, same as submit, to the governing authorities, but then listen to this, for there is no authority except from. That's a source word, folks. That's Christ at the top of the diagram. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, by direct act of God, sourced in God. Anyone that has a position of authority in the state is actually under Christ. Whether they know it or not, they still are. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, crazily, (laughs) Christians have argued, well, that means that even if the ruler is slaughtering you, you just got to 
sit back and take it because they're appointed by God. Would we ever feel comfortable saying to a, a group of 50 sexually abused, beaten women? Well, the Bible says you're supposed to submit to your husband, so let him kill you. No. Would we ever encourage people going to a church with a cult leader controlling every aspect of life? Well, Hebrews 13, no. We would understand there's limits. And in the same way, state authority is limited by God. In fact, look at how rulers are framed up here that are functioning as God's servants. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, who defines good and bad? The Bible. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, again, good as defined by God, and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant. Wow, I wonder how many rulers today understand that. The word there actually is deacon. They are God's deacon for your good. But if you do wrong, who defines what's wrong? The Bible. Be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain, which is a symbol of public justice to protect and to execute. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Does God punish people that are doing righteous acts? No, he punishes those who are sinning. Therefore, the ruler, the state is God's servant to punish those that are transgressing God's law not punish those who are going to church, not punishing those that are calling their people to gather, not punishing those that are standing for liberty and justice and freedom, not punishing those who are asking officials, could you at least obey the law yourself? No, that's not the, that's not the role of the state to punish those that are acting righteously. It's to punish those that have transgressed God's law. The wrongdoer, the text says. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So again, it's, it's so evident in this text that civil authority is, is from God. They are under God. They're appointed by God and they are God's servants. That is their job description. That's what they're supposed to be doing public justice, punishing criminals, and rewarding the righteous. That is the job description of the state, and it's timeless. Every state, this is their job description. So once again, why isn't the premier or the local health unit expert called a cult leader when he or she decides when you can leave your home, what restaurants you can or cannot eat in, who can open or close their businesses? Who can work? Who can worship and under what circumstances? Who can travel from province to province? Who can leave the country or come back into the country? Why isn't he called a cult leader? He should be. They should be. Because they're declaring themselves to be the high priests over the new religion of Western culture, statism. Our prime minister does this too. He, he draws upon moral language. Do you notice this? This is a man who presides over the execution of babies, medically assisted suicide, 
is doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman, a boy or a girl. This is the man that has cast aside all of God's societal constructs and then dares to draw upon moral language with no source behind it to say, you need to love your neighbor by fill in the blank. You need to do the, what's the next word? Right thing. Right. That's a moral word, Mr. Trudeau. What is the basis of right and wrong in your worldview? The state, not the word of God, not the creator that has appointed him to serve his purposes. He is the source of right and wrong. Folks, this is idolatry. It's idolatry. And one of the saddest things that we've witnessed in the past almost two years now is a majority of Christian pastors across our country applauding idolatry and calling their congregations as part of their witness to submit to every edict, every law, every rule that the state chooses to impose upon the citizenry. Even those that violate employment law, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Bill of Rights, and numerous other rights and laws within within and without the criminal code of Canada. What are we doing? We're presiding over churches and pushing them towards exactly what the world wants, the Western world wants. Worship of the state. Now, some have said, well, you know what? I still think they're well-intentioned. I still think they're trying to do the right thing. And um, we should only resist when they tell us you can't preach the gospel. But if we can still preach the gospel, then we'll accommodate in all the lesser areas, baptism, Lord's Supper, laying hands on, the, uh, on, on new elders, anointing with oil for the sick. We'll, we'll dispense with all that as long as they don't stop us from preaching the gospel. <laughs> this is so reductionistic. The gospel is not, you're a sinner, you need to get saved, this is what Jesus did for you. That's part of the gospel. The gospel fundamentally is about the absolute lordship of Christ over creation. It's the message of a kingdom that transcends this world. You can't preach the gospel and allow other people to claim Jesus' role. Plus, the Nazis didn't forbid the preaching of the gospel. You know that, right? The Nazis didn't, didn't say you can't preach the gospel. Hitler never said that. You can preach the gospel all through World War II. So why did righteous people rise up to take Hitler out? <laughs> because it's more than just being hindered from preaching the gospel. It's destroying people's lives that Christian or Christianized people realize needed to be stopped. So let's not be so reductionistic to boil down the, the ministry of the church merely to the salvation message, how to get, how to get fire insurance, you know, how to get out of hell and get to heaven. Susie and I were watching a, a movie called Young Victoria. And it's a, it's a historical depiction back in the early 1800s of Queen Victoria who came to the throne very young and she ends up marrying her first cousin, Albert. Kind of, you know, the kissing cousins thing, maybe not so cool today, but that's what happened back then. And they had a, they had a pretty good marriage. They had nine children out of that. But there's a scene in the movie where she's really offended by him 
she feels that he's sort of interfered a little bit in her role as queen. So they're in the bedroom and they're having this argument. She's like, you embarrass me. And she, you know, she's kind of tearing a strip off him and he's trying to defend himself. And then at one point he's just like, okay, I'm out of here kind of thing. And he goes to the door and she's like, wait, you can't go. I'm your sovereign. I'm your queen. And he's just like, and he leaves, right? Well, he did the right thing because truly she was his queen. And in matters of the state, he actually had to submit to her. But in this marital spat, he was her husband. So he had authority over her, but she draws her authority from one sphere and tries to coerce him in a different sphere. And he sort of sees through that. He's like, I'm not not putting up with that. So it's possible in life for us to function in different spheres. So for example, I'm the pastor of this church, the lead pastor, there are other pastors here as well, but we have some police officers here. And let's suppose one of you folks are police officers and I see that you're committing sin. And I go, hey bro, you know, you gotta stop this. It's inappropriate. You gotta, you know, you gotta confess. And you know, if you don't, we're gonna wield some church discipline. You're like, okay, I, I, will, I will submit, I will obey. Okay, great, we win. But if I go out of here and I got my shotgun, I'm down by the river blowing seagulls away <laughs> or speeding down EC row and the same person pulls me over and I'm like, I'm your pastor. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, no. Now we're in a different sphere, okay? Now I'm in charge. So this is helpful for us to understand that no one's authority is exhaustive. It has to be exercised within their sphere. And in one case, you might be in charge of someone else. And in another case, they might be in charge of you. Perhaps, ladies, maybe you are like, you know, I submit to my husband at home. But when we go to the work, when we go to work, I happen to be the president of the local such and such, you know, and he's 18 rungs down. So I tell him what to do. That's perfectly acceptable because you're in a different sphere of life. Well, this is how confused the world is about this kind of stuff. We were visited by a representative of the Windsor-Essex Community Health Unit recently, who's a Christian. And they were sort of touring our church and, you know, little check marks. They were interacting with one of our pastors. And this Christian person said to one of the pastors that was showing her around, she said, you know, you, you have to submit to the state. And then she said, even if it was Adolf Hitler, you should obey him as part of your Christian witness. Now think about that. Not only is it inappropriate for her to come in here in her capacity as a health unit and lecture us in Christian theology, but this is where the majority of the Christian church appears to be. If the state tells the church to jump, we say how high. If the state tells our church, here's your limits, we say, okay, we're gonna obey. We can't push back. We can't have a conversation. You never answer our letters. You you berate us with allegations of being anti-science, even though you haven't provided us with any of the science. It's been two years. We've seen people suffer in all other areas of life, mentally, financially, socially, maritally, but we're supposed to just submit to the all-encompassing state. This is idolatry. And I've said this, and I'll say it to my dying breath. I will never relinquish authority over the worship 
or ministry of the Christian church to the state. And nor should you, nor should you, nor should you. So in conclusion, a few things just to take home with you. Remember that whenever you're having discussions about authority and trying to figure out the boundaries of authority, start off with this. Christ must always be acknowledged to be our rightful king and his authority is comprehensive over all of life. Secondly, under God, God has delegated spheres of authority. And when they function, listen clearly, when they function within God's limits, they deserve to be honored, submitted to, and obeyed. But when they step outside of the boundaries and they transgress God's word, you do not need to obey them. In the weeks ahead, we're going to look in more detail at some of these foundational spheres of life. I think it'll be an interesting study and probably generate lots of after-church conversations that will benefit you. But in the meanwhile, let's pursue a life that honors God. And part of honoring God, folks, is not just getting ready for heaven. We also want to live in a well-ordered society. We want to live in a society that reflects God's laws and the virtues and values that God has placed upon this world. And as we do all of these things, we trust that the Lord and the Lord alone will ultimately be glorified.